Hallelujah. Dear Father, we lift up our voices unto you and thank you that you have declared yourself victorious over everything that the enemy thought that he could accomplish in the hearts of each one in this place who has confessed faith in Christ and in the course of all of history. Lord, the enemy's plans have been turned against him and the very instruments that he sought to destroy the word and the work of God have become a tool in the hands of the Almighty to defeat death, to satisfy the wrath that our sin deserved on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Lord, to turn against the enemies of God's word and his will, all of the plans that the enemy thought that he could lay out to thwart the Almighty. Father, time and again, with every page of redemptive history, you have shown him to be your tool, and you've shown yourself to be magnificent, glorified, powerful, preeminent, worthy of praise, beautiful, holy, just, merciful, sound, true, and sovereign from the end all the way back to the beginning of creation and forward into eternity. All things are unfolding without fail according to your predestined decree. And we, your people, raise our hallelujahs this morning, considering the grace that has saved us from the death of sin and resurrected us unto newness of life in Christ Jesus. As we set our mind upon your word now, I pray that our affections would resonate with the truth and the beauty therein contained. And I pray that you would equip our words and our witness to be effective to proclaim the gospel to our children, to the lost, to those that you bring us in, to uh, encounter in the course of our daily affairs, that we might join the voice of creation which gives you glory, preaching sermon after sermon, great is our God and greatly to be praised. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a great privilege to open His Scriptures together this morning. Let's do so today by turning to Psalm 58. Psalm 58. As you're turning there in your Scriptures, let me give you a title. Today's message is simply three words. The last word. That's a colloquial term. It's a common phrase. If someone gets the last word... They were able to establish the truth. They were able to say the punctuation point or the exclamation point on the thought or the exchange. If two are in a disputation, if they're in an argument with one another, whoever gets the last word, makes the last impression, has the final say, has the definitive take on the events that took place or the argument or the uh, controversy. And so as we see the uh, sides unfolding, the dichotomy between the word of God and the line word of the enemy, in this case, Psalm 58, brings that cosmic conflict to a head and assures us in the words of David that he, that is the Lord himself, always and forever has the last word. Praise the Lord for this truth. Stand with, with me if you're able, with your Bible open to Psalm 58, and follow me as I read this, these glorious verses. The title of this morning's psalm is, To the Choir Master, According to Do Not Destroy, a Miktam of David. Verse 1, Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. In your heart you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on the earth. 
The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ears, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. Verse 6. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. Verse 10. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on the earth. This is the word of God. You may be seated. This morning's psalm, the title reminds us of something of the context, no doubt, in which it was written to the choir master according to do not destroy. So David identifies this psalm as a do not destroy song, if you were. It's a category of psalms uh, more than a couple fall into. And he names a few of them with this title. Psalm 57, the psalm that preceded ours today, to the choir master, according to, again, do not destroy. A miktam, which we take in our best estimation to be, again, a musical designation or a kind of song or something of that sort. So this miktam of David... Psalm 57 took place when he fled from Saul in the cave. It was circumstances like this that compelled David to lean on the Lord, not on his own understanding, in such a way as we hear it in Psalm 58 this morning. He leans on the Lord's sovereignty. He leans on the Lord's judgments. He leans on the Lord even when all the circumstances that he is experiencing seem to be at odds with his survival and with his encouragement. As he has written Psalm 57 in a cave, perhaps he's still cowering in the darkness as he is a fugitive running from Saul's sword and all of the company of those who oppose him at this time. Perhaps he's hiding in the nooks and crannies of the rocks as he writes another do not destroy song, Psalm 58. In Psalm 58, we have a classic text, a locus classicus, if you will, illustrating the faith of the believer with respect to the future of this world. David hits on and he underscores at the close of this message, this song, final judgment. There is a day of reckoning that will ultimately come and no one will escape. Neither his enemies himself or anyone else will uh, be able to escape this ultimate day of answering to the Lord for everything that we have done in this world. This is a future orientation that marks the faith of a true believer. We believe that God is in charge. We believe that God is in charge of history. We believe that no one ultimately gets away with it. But everyone must answer. They must make an appeal before the court of glory, before that great white throne where perfect justice, omniscience, and omnipotence is featured in our standing then trial for what we have done in this life. And again, the gospel tells us in accord with this truth that the only appeal that the only justification for ourselves to get through that process and be 
and here from the court of glory, not guilty, is to be clothed in a righteousness alien to ourselves. It is to have Jesus Christ imputed law-keeping part of the fabric of our being, and that is our only ground of appeal. David, in his faith in the future Messiah, speaks these words with confidence, knowing that though he is a sinner like the enemies that chase him, he stands in a different place. His foundation is unique and secure because he ultimately places his futures, his hope in the Christ that will come. This is David's eschatology, if you will, or end times idea or faith. Psalms uh, like this, songs in the Psalter, even Old Testament sections of Scripture like this, give us insight as to the authors of the Old Covenant, their eschatology, their view on how things will shake out in the future. It was convictions like this, firmly rooted in, listen, the cosmic and condescending sovereignty of God that kept David from retreating into the cave of apostasy, though he was chased by Saul on all fronts. What do we mean by cosmic and condescending? God rules over all. His sovereignty transcends everything, but also he condescends. He stoops low. He interacts relationally in history with his people in time. He sends his prophets to give his word. He sends his son incarnate, born of a virgin, to preach the kingdom, to die as a sacrifice for our sins. God is transcendent. God is here. In, of him and through him and to him are all things. These truths, David firmly roots his confidence to these truths. The sovereignty of God affirmed in Scripture and on the lips and in the heart of David as he sung these praises to the Lord kept him from retreating into the cave of apostasy. Sure, you promised me all these things, Lord. He might have wrestled with the temptation. You anointed me to be king over these people. Yet my life is risked every time I show my face in public. I've sought refuge with the Philistines, pretending to be insane. And I had to flee from there. I've gone to the cave of Adullam to find refuge, only to be discovered. I've been betrayed by my countrymen at every turn. There is a bounty on my head. Saul has all of his henchmen out chasing me down as if I were a common uh, prey to be hunted. You can imagine under these circumstances how tempting it would be to think, that wasn't a true promise you gave me, Lord. Who was that you know, deranged man with the vial of oil that poured it on my head and said, me, youngest and most insignificant, mere shepherd boy of all my brothers, would one day rule this land when I am chased down at every turn by the police and the magistrates and the tyrants of my day. David spent his days evading the wicked, lawless, bloodthirsty tyrants, Saul and those who were aligned with him, yet he did not lose his faith in God's promises. What was the key of his certainty? We find it in Psalm 58, the knowledge that David firmly holds that God will have the last word. God will have the last word in fulfilling all of his promises, which are yes and amen to his covenant people. He will have the last word in history where every covenant breaker, along with all who are in the covenant through Christ, will stand before the seat of judgment. And on that day, no one will escape his authority, though they try to in this life. What lessons does David teach us from this crucible of affliction? Spurgeon summarizes them this way. He writes, All men shall be forced by the sight 
of the final judgment to see that there is a God, that He is the righteous ruler of the universe. Two things will come out clearly after all. One, there is a God. Two, there is a reward for the righteous. Time will remove doubts, solve difficulties, reveal secrets. Meanwhile, faith is foreseen is the foreseen eye, or the foreseen eye of faith discerns the truth even now and is glad thereat. So faith of David, evidenced in Psalm 58, summarized in this quote, is that ultimately God will prove himself just and faithful when the righteous are rewarded and the wicked are judged. And meanwhile, I can stand strong in faith that that day will happen. Psalm 58 prescribes a reality check for us when we are tempted to doubt these truths. Psalm 58 prescribes a reality check for us, perhaps in three phases. Let's consider how David exposes depravity. Number two, how, how there are deserving judgments. And number three, disputation is resolved. Verses one through five, depravity is exposed. We see ultimately what is truth and we see ultimately what is a lie. What is righteousness? What is wickedness? David reorients his thinking by the standard of God's immutable word. Secondly, we see deserving judgments. We see seven times proclaimed what will fall upon the head of those who unrepentantly rebel against the Lord in their life. Thirdly, we see this disputation, this conflict, if you will, resolved. The forces that align themselves with the serpent and the forces with the woman using the language of Genesis 3.15, or those who place their faith and trust in Christ and those who deny Him, we see how ultimately that dispute, that conflict, is resolved in the last two verses, verses 10 through 11. Let's dig in a little deeper, returning to our text this morning. First of all, let me draw your attention in verses 1 through 5 to David's train of thought. David prescribes a reality check by exposing the depravity of the wicked, and as we follow his train of thought, we see how he emphasizes this to us in verse 1. Do you indeed decree... What is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on the earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. In this finely crafted poetry, in this first verse of this beautiful worship song, if you will, as we follow David's train of thought, we see a sophisticated declaration of truth. He begins employing satire and a rhetorical question, if you will. When David references gods, it's with a little g. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? What does this mean? Those who would falsely ascribe to themselves lawlessness or sovereignty or independence or autonomy from anyone who would tell them you must do this, you must not do that. Those who declare themselves independent of the Ten Commandments. Those who live their life, make their decisions, hold their views and opinions as if there is no higher authority to, to answer to. This is what the Bible describes as lawlessness. Now, these individuals, these parties, these ideas, these concepts, these philosophies, they may well hold strictly to a code. They may not err from that particular code, but it is, if it is something that they have designed or that they, or that they have gleaned from any other source than the sovereign God Almighty, 
neither social conventions nor the, uh, the uh, consensus of philosophy nor the record of pagan history nor the scientist's best, best inferences to a best ex explanation. None of them are a sufficient authority. And if that is the ultimate appeal of where any of these individuals stand, they may hold to it with a certain tenacity and consistency. They are still lawless. Why? Because they don't affirm the only true law. The only true righteousness, the only true foundation, the only true power who rules and reigns over this universe by creative right and decree that declares this is righteousness, this is wickedness. Any substitute for God's immutable word is lawlessness. It is idolatry. It's self-exaltation. It is the heart of the serpent. It's the lie from the beginning when the enemy came to Eve and said, you can be as God's. Determining for yourself what is good and what is evil. I propose a new idea, an innovative thought, a progressive mentality, a different standard, a self-contained authority. When the enemy comes with these lies, we can be sure they come from the serpent, not from the sovereign. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? You see the note of satire that David uses? You gods. As if you, in your declaration of authority, you would also presume to create this world, to control the future, to govern the world? Just go ahead and try. Let us watch that babble crumble as the Lord laughs in derision from the heavenlies. Let us watch the enemies of God turn their weapons on each other as kingdoms rise and fall over and over again if they deny the sovereign Jesus Christ. Let us see Psalm 2 illustrated again and again as the clay pot of self-contained authority meets the rod of iron in Christ's own hand and the shards of humanism are scattered like a monument to foolishness across the landscape of recorded history. This is the depravity that the Word of God exposes. And as we follow David's train of thought, we see why he has such confidence even though for a season the wicked seem to reign. He begins his song with a note of satire. These, of course, are no gods at all. He says, do you judge the children of man uprightly? And that's the rhetorical question. Your twisted scales of justice will never balance. You will never be able to plumb the line between righteousness and wickedness, between who is the ultimate sovereign and what are the subjects, the sovereign, the subjects, the realm and law. What is the essence of a kingdom would always be perverse and distorted so long as you presume to decree right and wrong. Do you indeed decree what is right? David is saying satirically and ironically that only a fool would claim to do so. God himself has ordained the end from the beginning. And anyone who does not bow before his decree, if he proposes to judge the children of man uprightly, he does so as a thief that would borrow from God's word but not claim allegiance to him, or he does so as a fool using his own standards and proving himself perverse and ill-equipped for that very task. Secondly, as we follow David's train of thought, we move from satire and a rhetorical question to cause and effect. David says in verse 2, no. So now he negates his uh, rhetorical point in the beginning. You know, do you judge the children of man uprightly? Of course not. No, what a foolish thought. In your hearts, you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on the earth. Notice there's a cause and effect relationship. There's a root and a fruit issue here. So long as in your hearts you devise wrong, your hands will always deal out violence. 
there's a direct and inseparable connection between the condition of the human heart and the actions that he takes, his confession, his attitude, his decisions, his outward behavior, his beliefs, and the things that he embarks on, the things that he values and appreciates and promotes. He says, as long in so many words as your hearts are wicked, dead, depraved in your sinfulness, your hands will always seek to make war against the Lord himself. And then he goes on, after identifying this cause and effect relationship between the policies of an individual and their root, their core, their heart, then he expounds the cause, and then he illustrates the effect. He goes on to say in verse 3, expounding the cause, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. He says this is a systemic problem that goes all the way back to your hereditary connection to Adam himself. Everyone who is in Adam, which is every human being that was born since the fall, is estranged from the womb. There is a systemic endemic uh, problem in his soul, something that must be remedied before he can do what? Judge rightly the children of man. Before he can do what? Understand what is a true decree or know right from wrong. There is an issue that must uh, need, that needs redemption, that cries out for correction. There is a blindness to which we must be freed, we must be able to see. There is a deafness of ear. He goes on to describe it even in this imagery of the, venom, uh, of the venomous serpent who has ears that are stopped against the declaration of truth, the true decree of God's immutable, established word. These are the circumstances that are inescapable to the unbeliever until he repents of his sin and trusts in the Lord. He says they go astray from birth speaking lies. One commentator, as I was studying for this text, said there is no sin more akin to the devil uh, than, the, than the sin of lying. The reason he said it is the very first trick that the serpent in the garden pulled out of his bag was to lie to Eve. Uh, simply misrepresenting the truth, uh, bearing false witness, uh, misleading and misguiding false standards, and making appeals to truth on an ungrounded basis. All of these things uh, we might pass off as little sins and, and, and things that aren't that important, but they strike to the heart of the wickedness that is in the soul of every man before he commit or confesses his sin and commits his way to the Lord. So here we see the cause of man's evil doing expounded. It's a problem that goes all the way to the core of his being. David expounds this and other psalms we'll touch on in a moment. But finally, in his train of thought in these first five verses, we find the effect illustrated. If this is the case that mankind, indeed even those who have significance and prominence like magistrates, judges and the like, who are in positions of authority, none of them can escape their uh, enslavement to their own sin what does that then look like? How does it work itself out? David uses colorful ways to describe this in verses 4 and 5. He says, They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. So David is describing a dangerous serpent, a snake, one that is incorrigible, cannot be corrected. Certain cobras, you've seen the pictures where they can be manipulated through music. The guy plays a fife or whatever, or maybe that's a trick and he really just uh, uh, controls the, the, the snake with food or something of the like. And they dance to his tune and it appears that he has some mastery over this reptile. 
Well, David is saying that the wicked that I'm dealing with, those who are estranged from the womb, the condition of every human heart is far worse than a dangerous cobra you would meet in the wild. It's like a cobra that can't even be manipulated through uh, uh, an outside influence, someone coming up to them and charming them. Uh, reason and common sense, you know, uh, would, would dictate that this is a bad policy decision, uh, Mr. Judge. Uh, don't you see from the testimony of history that mankind has always had issues with this, so we should be careful not to consolidate power with you after all. We shouldn't trust ourselves too much. The voice of reason isn't sufficient to convince a deaf man. The voice of the record of history and the experience of mankind will never persuade somebody who cannot hear. The Lord must give us ears to hear. Where does hearing come from? Faith cometh by hearing. Hearing comes by the word of God. We can make our appeals ad nauseum till we're blue in the face. We can preach a logic to culture. We can reason with the unbeliever. But until the Holy Spirit does a sovereign work to resurrect his hearing, he will be incorrigible to the truth. Ultimately, his heart will stay enslaved to his sinful condition, and he will be like an adder, that's deaf, spewing venom, and every time you encounter him, it's deadly. So that's David's train of thought, to expose the depravity. This is one of the lessons the reality of <laughs> check of Psalm 58 gives us. Don't trust the world. Do not trust any authority, any truth, any opinion that exalts itself above the knowledge of Christ, even if it sounds on the surface like a good idea, even if it's in great packaging, shiny labels, even if it's popular, even if it's promoted by significant experts, people, think tanks, and so on. We live in a culture that wants to put the stamp of authenticity on every subtle, godless idea. But as we analyze it in the light of truth, does it truly stand the test of righteousness? If it does not, it's a venomous snake that can't be charmed, and when you come in contact with it, it will be fatal. Depravity is exposed in Psalm 58. It's a reality check for us. Let us turn to a parallel reference, Genesis 3. Where does David get his imagery for this song? David, uh, an amazing poet, gifted and creative, yet he has a source in Scripture, in special revelation himself, as he puts his song together. He is drawing on language that we find in the Scriptures. Notice the similarity, what we have just learned from Psalm 58, as David sings his ode to the Lord, exposing the depravity of man. Notice the similarity in the parallels in context to the original sin itself and the account of the fall in Genesis 3, 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Verse 4, the deception. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. As we touch on this parallel reference, you see how David is drawing through his poetic parallels right from the source of where evil stems from. Notice the issues that he is dealing with in his enemies are exactly the ones that came in, introduced the human race to the temptation of this beguiling, venomous, incorrigible serpent. First of all, there was an appeal based on a lie. This is a great idea. 
and you know you you just misunderstood what God said. Let me correct the record. And think about it this way for a moment. And then I think you'll see where I where I stand and this perspective will shed some light on something and the enemy thus convinces man to bite down what God has forbidden an appeal based on a lie. Also there's a promise to be as God. There's a promise to be able to decree what is right, to be able to judge the children of man uprightly all by ourselves, without submitting and surrendering to God, without humbling ourselves before Him, without committing our thoughts, our opinions, our experience, our mentalities, our predispositions to the sovereignty and the truth that is contained in God's Word. A promise to be as God. Then there's the consequence that we find in this record of federal curse, representative corruption, All of mankind will be plunged, we find, in the course of the Scriptures, into the death of sin, into the curse of Adam, on account of this very thing. And we find that is true in Psalm 58. we got David's enemies acting just like the serpent. And finally, there's this intrigue and craftiness characterized by the serpentine identity. Oh, here's something curious. Here's something new. Here's something interesting. A snake that talks. I wonder what he might have to say. Remember... Venom, venomous, incorrigible, all contact is fatal. Lastly, parallel reference, in under parallel reference for this passage, Psalm 51. It's interesting to note in Psalm 51 that David identifies himself by the same terms in another place. Listen, listen to what he says. In other words, in Psalm 51, we see that he himself, by his own confession, does not claim to be immune from the systemic effects of sin right, that depravity, the cause, the effect that he describes, he knows that he is in the same state apart from grace. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David says, verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now we start to see the difference. David does not double down on his sinful ideas. But he says, in admitting my sin, I also show by my confession that you are just and I'm wicked. You are wise and I'm the fool. You are perfect, I am blameworthy. Then he says, verse 5, again, getting down to the causal root, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. This problem is beyond my own remedy. I've had it from birth. So what can we learn when David, in another place, identifies himself with the very same issues that he accuses his enemies of in Psalm 58? I submit to you it is this. There is implied regeneration here. David, in other psalms, self-identifies with the same spiritual reality. Why does he so dramatically differentiate himself from the wickedness characterized by his enemies in Psalm 58? There is only one answer to that question, the grace of God which was David's salvation. The only reason David is different is because he is regenerate. He is a believer. God has called him out. He has forgiven him of his sin. David trusts in the atoning power of God's grace to wash his sin away. That is why he is in good standing. Under depravity exposed, let me close this major, first major point with a modern application. Do we have any quote-unquote gods today? Civil authorities is the most direct application that we see in the text. Civil authorities, or let's say experts and pundits, let's say leaders of think tanks, thought, uh, 
uh, th those who, who are subcontracted out to give us a good direction in our policies and the way we should think and how we should move forward, progressing as a nation, developing as a society, society evolving as a people, and the like. What are um, you know, postmodern ethics in this new age that has dawned upon us with all its glories of humanistic triumph? You know, it's kind of the attitude of the aura that we live in, the culture that surrounds us. Well, of course, these quote-unquote gods are on every side. We have civil authorities and otherwise who have set themselves against God in their lawlessness. Again, they claim to have great ideas without affirming the only source, God himself. They are either thieves or fools. And both, in fact, they are thieves, they are indeed fools as well. They are a law unto themselves. In a pure democratic process of arriving at right and wrong and truth and falsehood, we can never come to the truth. Why? Because most people invariably will vote the way their heart leads them. And where would their heart lead them? Well, if they're estranged from the womb, if they go astray from birth, if they are speaking lies, if they're infected with the venom of serpents, I don't think we're going to get very far trusting ourselves, do you? We must appeal to a higher authority. We must confess, as David did, that we're lost without him. That if we establish ourselves on any other foundation, it is lawlessness and judgment worthy. Now, in our day, as the dominoes of social convention have been falling over with the speed of the steepest slippery slope you can imagine, the application of Psalm 58 is huge. Just this morning, I learned that last night, perhaps the greatest, the most fatal shooting of its type, an American soil happened in Orlando, Florida. Last count, as I checked my phone, 50 plus dead. Well, I'll tell you what, these are the kind of crises that make people ask the question, by what rule or authority can we rely, or by what standard can we go in and correct this situation? Or what is our source of security in a very dangerous world? What is the solution to where, where do we turn? Why are these things happening to us? Why in the richest, safest nation in all of history can we not have this sense of security even in our own home? But every time we turn on the news, it seems like one version of judgments is falling upon us, either famine, pestilence, or sword, which is the triad of judgment that the Scriptures say is worthy of a people that deny His holy law. Well, we see under these conditions that we have a lot of repenting to do, do we not? And it ought to start in the house of God. How do we establish ourselves? How do we set ourselves apart? Where do we stand? Some have wa uh, wondered. I listened to a radio show the other day. He didn't have an answer. He had a good question. He said, I wonder how a such statistically insignificant minorities of people here and there have so much power to sway culture one way or, the or another. And he was speaking to a relatively simple issue. It would seem uh, in the past, uh, who should go in what bathroom? Or, he, you know, another suggestion is, is how many, or, 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 you know, perhaps he was referring to the 31 uh, recognized genders that you ha lawfully have to acknowledge as an employer in New York City. His question is, you know, of the 31 possible genders that New York City affirms that you can actually identify as, you know, if we took a poll, how many people would uh, represent one of those 31 genders? Well, likely very, very few. Well, he asks this question, how is it then that this very statistically insignificant minority seems to steer the whole ship these days. Well, I submit to you, I did some thinking, and it, it occurred to me that our new definition of righteousness or civic virtue has come to be defined as taking up the cause of marginalized subsets of the population who have identified themselves in many cases by challenging creation, order, 
norms of behavior, values, and design, thus rejecting the timeless standard of God's word. We're just awash in a sea of confusion. It's just a treading water in a deluge of lawlessness. That's why we're floundering as a people. Where can we go? Where can we go under these conditions? We go exactly where David went. We go to the culture and we bring this word. Do you indeed decree what is right, you quote-unquote gods? You sovereigns over modern culture, so to speak? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. In your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked, after all, are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth. Not just you, but me too. Read my other psalm, speaking first person as if I was David. Psalm 51. Where can you stand so as to avoid this confusion, this self-destructive behavior, and reap the judgment that is deserving seven times over on your own head? Stand with me. Stand in Christ. Trust in Him. Any other liar, any other hope, any other future, any other promise is the venom of a fatal serpent that will not listen to you but stops its ears. Stand with the Lord. One day, after all, mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. There, it is worth taking a stand for God and His Word in a day when it is unpopular. Because one time, or at one time in the future, all mankind will say, surely there is a God who judges on earth. What is the ultimate judge on earth? Or what does He decree? And who is He? What has He laid down? We go to His Word for that. We affirm Him as the sovereign. And there we stand. That's our modern application. Major point number two this morning. Psalm 58 prescribes a reality check when we see how David lays out deserving judgments. The second phase is to identify deserving judgments. I want you to notice there are seven, verses six through nine, reading again. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. David is speaking. You can see the fingerprint, the forensic analysis, if you will, of special revelation on this particular text. You can tell it's inspired by more ways than one. One of them is, I submit to you, that David declares judgment in a, a group of seven. This is a pattern in the scripture. I'll, I'll recall your, um, your memory to Matthew 23, which we've been studying recently. How many woes does Jesus pronounce on the scribes and the Pharisees for denying the Lord of glory? Seven. Seven times he says, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, for you go across land and sea to make a single proselyte. But when you're done, you make him twice a child of hell as yourself. And in the end, he, fi he finally says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you are among those who murdered the prophets. Judgment is coming upon your own heads. And in our study, which we'll pick up next week, we will see how that will come upon that generation in dramatic, cataclysmic, catastrophic form. Now, that's just another passage where a, a judgment grouping of seven appears. But there's tw two other places, at least in Revelation. Chapter 7, chapter 16, there's seven bowls of wrath that are stored up. There are seven seals, and as it is un unveiled, God's decree behind each one, we see the judgment that befalls those who separate themselves, who declare themselves a lawless standard, who deny the Lord and His revealed word. 
So in this context, we see that the number of uh, judgments is significant. Go through them, David uses uh, the person or even the anatomy of the person, nature and providence to make his point. Just quickly so we can kind of grasp his context. O God, break the teeth in their mouth. The implements of destruction for a snake or a lion are his teeth. That's a point of contact where he does the most damage. David is crying out poetically, Lord, disable them on their implement where they can wreak the most havoc. Destroy their teeth, break them right in their mouths. He says again to reinforce this, tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. A defanged lion and a, a, a snake that has its fangs removed, which are actually the conduit for the venom in that they are hollow. Once those are removed, these creatures can actually be manipulated and mastered, whereas they're far more dangerous if those implements of violence remain. Verse 7, let them vanish like water that runs away. And this is to indicate how fast and swift God's judgment, as fast as if to say, as water seeks its own level. If you were to go into a pool with a shovel and you're going to make a pile of water, could you ever be successful? Of course not. How foolish would that be? Why? Because water runs away that quickly. And it is that quickly that God can judge a nation. In other words, resisting God's judgment when it is deserved is like trying to make a haystack of water in a pool with a shovel. You will always be futile in standing in obstinance and rebellion against the Lord when His day of reckoning comes. Uh, fourthly, in number, uh, verse 7, when He aims His arrows, let them be blunted. Here we have a picture of a man drawing his bow and, a, and someone standing with the shears right beside him. Before the arrow goes, he just clips off the end. Before the arrow goes, he clips off the end. So every arrow that flies out is blunted before it even leaves. And an arrow that has been compromised will fly all wild and crazy, and the archer will look like an idiot. And he will not meet his mark, and even if he did, it might bruise a little, but it certainly won't be fatal. Verse 8, let them be like a snail that dissolves into slime. Uh, my kids are always fascinated with the shells that you find on the beach, and usually they're empty. And there's that, you know, preeminent question that uh, bothers the mind of the greatest philosophers. Where do all the snails go? There are so many shells and so few snails. It's as if they disappear into their own slime. And in this way, God can eliminate a wicked generation in a moment. Or those that were chasing David in this instance can be dethroned, can, be, can vanish away. I mean, David knows this firsthand, or he came to know this firsthand in the elimination of 70,000 in three days by pestilence, as we studied recently in 2 Samuel 24. Let them dissolve, let them be like a snail that just reduced to its own slime. He goes on with even more stark imagery. Let them be like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. And this is dramatic indeed. He's saying that their purpose for living will never be accomplished. They set themselves to defy the Lord, and yet their plans never come to fruition. Their purpose for living is thwarted at every turn, and ultimately let them be judged. Of course, the qualification would be barring repentance, which David experienced and would certainly preach. But now he's speaking God's words as the judgment that is due those who are unrepentant, are hard of heart, indeed are reprobate. Verse 9, he says, Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. And in commentaries, we find that in desert environments, they're often windy, and it's difficult to shelter your cooking fire from the storms, the, you know, the winds that come. So your best opportunity to chances to do so are to gather dried thorns. The multiple surfaces and the nature of that tinder will create a flash fire right away. 
And a fire that flashes up on a metal pan will instantly bring heat to whatever's inside of it. And that's the idea. You want to get your fire burning as quick as possible. David says, even before the flames can touch the pan, bring your wind of judgment and sweep it away. You set the pan over this raging uh, pile of thorns. The thorns are blown away. You touch your hand to the bottom of the pan, still cool to the touch. That is how swiftly God can intervene to save his own and to judge those who are against him. These are the deserving judgments that David speaks of. This is the reality check that is prescribed for those who suffer in difficult times. As we go on to see in the rest of Scripture, this is another take on the classic conflict that we read of back in Genesis 3. Remember the curses doled out. There will be increasing and incessant until glory, consummation, enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. But ultimately, it won't be purposeless. purposeless. There will be a conclusion. One day, the seed of the woman will stomp on the head of the seed of the serpent, and though he incurs a mortal wound, he will rise from the dead, and ultimately, death will be defeated on that blow, by that blow on Calvary. Well, in this passage, in Psalm 58, the son of David has identified his enemies with serpents. He goes all the way back to use the imagery of Genesis 3 to say, those who oppose the Lord's anointed are like venomous, dangerous serpents. Jesus uses the same language, I'll remind you again, in Matthew 23. What does he say of the scribes and the Pharisees? He said, you are of your, son, uh, of your father, the devil. You're a brood of vipers. You are sons of serpents. One day, this conflict that David experienced as a type of Christ will come to a head, and it does in the Gospels at the cross. And ultimately, the worst, dangerous, deafest, if you will, a cobra that reared its ugly head against the son of David will prove ineffective. His head is crushed in, his, in the fatal blow of Calvary, and the mortal head wound is sustained by the enemy himself, and in him we have victory. David is foreshadowing these very events as he uh, gives a classic account in the course of redemptive history of the conflict between the forces that oppose God's anointed and the messianic uh, preordained order that God has set in place that ultimately will defeat sin, death, and the devil. Finally this morning, Psalm 58 prescribes reality check as we see the disputation resolved. The third phase, just the last two verses, 10 and 11. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on the earth. I want you to see how this parallels the very first verse. Notice the similarities between verse 11 and verse 1. Verse 1 again, Do you indeed decree what is right to you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? So that which the unbeliever presumptuously intends to do, redefine reality according to his ideas. Uh, is actually set aright in the last verse. One day, everyone who tried to do something so stupid will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on the earth. Man acting as God in verse 1 seeks to redefine right and wrong in his judgments. The close of, of, Matthew, or, or of uh, Psalm 58 we find the universal testimony of mankind will one day be that God, the one true sovereign, is the only righteous judge. 
And so there's closure here. The satire and the rhetorical question that David opens with, he ultimately answers in the last verse. Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on the earth. And surely there is coming a day when every tongue will confess and every knee will bow to this truth. And here he finds confidence. There is a parallel reference. I can't resist but turn you there, though we've covered some scripture already. Go with me to Esther. If you want to get a book, if you want to study a book that illustrates Psalm 58, almost idea for idea, Esther is a great suggestion. Uh, the book of Esther has not been uncontroversial through the years for some reasons, one of them being that the name of God is not mentioned within the text, but the mark of God's sovereignty is all over this record. It again has the mark, the stamp of authenticity, it's the fingerprints of divine revelation that are written all over this book. Well, you remember the story. In the capital of the Persian Empire, Susa, a conflict arose. God strategically positioned his servant Esther to intervene on his people's behalf. She makes her appeal to the king. The wicked man represented by Haman, through his lawlessness, has erected a gallows to kill his mortal enemy, and he's also decreed through nefarious means to uh, influence the law and the command uh, uh, and the uh, legislation to do away with all the Jews. Well, God brings this king or Haman to account, the king to correction, and he does it all through the most unlikely of vessels, a beautiful woman who is crowned queen uh, in the wake of the disfavored, uh, uh, um, divorced queen before. And, and as she is serving in this role, certain things begin to take place. And we read of some of them in summary form in chapter 9. Notice verses 1 through 3. Now in the twelfth month, month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them. Notice that language. They hoped to gain mastery. The reverse occurred. What a glorious phrase. The reverse occurred. This is what David is prophesying in Psalm 58. The enemies are chasing. God's anointed has him on the run. But one day the reverse will occur. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The plans of the enemy completely turned on their head. Number two, verse two. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples all the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for fear of Mordecai had fallen upon them. There is repentance. There is correction taking place in the highest offices of the land. Even the civil magistrates are changing their mind according to God's truth. A revival has broken out in every stage, every level of society in the midst of this conflict as the reverse is occurring of what the enemy had originally planned. And then in conclusion, we read verses 16 through 19, for instance. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's province also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and the 14th and rested on the 15th. Uh, excuse me, I just read that. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who lived in the rural towns, verse 19, hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting 
as a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. The book of Esther illustrates Psalm 58 almost to a T, where the enemy sought to rout God's people and utterly destroy them, where the odds, just humanly speaking, were utterly stacked against them. Suddenly, the reverse occurred. It happened in an unlikely set of events that demonstrated the sovereignty of God to intervene in history on behalf of His people to satisfy His purposes, His decree, and His ends. Many commentators think that the book of Esther itself was written by a Persian Jew living in Susa. If that's the case, and the context would certainly bear the weight of that claim, the guy who wrote, you know, uh, who may have written the book of Esther was himself converted during these very events. This is how our sovereign God acts in history. He can turn the plans to destroy and rout his people utterly on the head of his enemies, and he can break out in a massive revival of the Gentiles at the same time. And he can bring judgment on 75,000 people who want to obstinately oppose him with what had been the backing of the government and the war machine of the greatest empire extant at that time behind them. You see, brothers and sisters, no matter how dark it is in our age, we have nothing to fear if we fear the Lord. Finally, let me close uh, underscoring the redemptive value of Psalm 58. When you read a psalm like Psalm 58, it sounds judgmental, does it not? Imprecatory, calling down curses, and it does. You might ask yourself, well, what is the redemptive value of such a thing? I mean, uh, misguided individuals have thought, well, I kind of want to keep my distance from those passages. After all, don't we live in an age of grace? Hasn't Christ come? Well, yes, that is certainly true. But let me tell you, there is great redemptive value in proclaiming the judgments of God. Let me also say that there is no gospel without the proclamation of God's judgments. There is no gospel without the judgments of our sin being taken on Jesus' uh, brutally torn and broken body and back. Uh, you know, the atheists say, oh, it's one of the, the Christian claim is the, one of the most brutal examples of child abuse in all of history. Fundamental ignorant misunderstanding of what actually took place. They don't understand the concept of a God who is just. They need to hear the judgments of God proclaimed. Without a sufficient sacrifice to incur the wrath that our sin justly deserved, God would not continue to be just in granting forgiveness to His own. Therefore, His Son must suffer and die at the hands of sinners so that He may be our vicarious, our substitute sacrifice. This is the gospel. And so as we see this, we find even in the death of Christ, Calvary makes no sense without the proclamation of judgment, justice due for our sins. We must hear the same words from Psalm 58 when we come to Christ, that we are estranged from the womb. We go astray from birth speaking lies. If we confess our sins, what sins? The sins that the Bible identify as lawlessness, leaving the Word of God, making our own way, acting as a God unto ourselves. If we confess that as sin, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thus, when the judgments of God are emphatically and unapologetically proclaimed, some among the wicked Brothers and sisters, you and I were once among them. Some among the wicked will find their hearts stunned to life by the reality of imminent and perfect justice. And they will declare their allegiance to the Lord of glory, repenting of their self-exaltation. This is what happened to those who were living in Susa at the time 
when Esther had the courage to obey God and intervene on behalf of her people. People declared their allegiance with the Jews because they saw that judgment for their own sin was forthcoming and they placed themselves in God's good graces rather than doubling down in their apostate evil and wickedness and rebellion. Let us be faithful to proclaim judgment and mercy. Only as we do so will the gospel be, uh, be diligently and accurately portrayed. But as we do so, the lost can be welcomed into the sheepfold because faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of God. Let us close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts before you. We declare that we ourselves are broken and lost apart from your grace. Lord, we have gone astray from the womb. Sin is systemic to our being, except that you regenerated us for all who claim Christ in this place today. If there are any who have not had the healing, miraculous, resurrecting touch of Jesus Christ in their own life and heart, I pray that you would reach them even this moment and spark in them faith, Lord. Grant unto them the gift of repentance that they may confess their sin and trust in Jesus Christ as their sufficient Savior. Lord, give us strength to proclaim your judgments and your mercy in a day when it is unpopular. And let us stand where David did. Even if we are chased by enemies on every side, we know that we are safe within the shadow of your wings. Ultimately, Lord, we find our hope in glory, which was purchased by the very expensive, immeasurable price of Christ's own blood. And thus it is secure. We look forward to that day. But when it comes, may you find us faithful, proclaiming the whole counsel of God. For your glory and namesake, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.